Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Exodus, the 15th chapter. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by. Whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all 
the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just read the song of Moses. Moses, who took up this pen carried along by the Holy Spirit, giving to the people of Israel a song by which they may recount and rehearse the deliverance from Egypt and your faithfulness to lead them all the way to the promised land. Lord, with Israel, we join Moses in this song, and we take up its melody and its lyric And together we reflect deeply upon the deliverance of an even greater proportion. That you have carried the likes of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ from slavery to sin to life and freedom in you. And that you are taking us, even now your pilgrim people, all the way to the promised land the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, by grace today, we will enter this story. And by grace, we will enter the story. And through it all, we'll be carried further along, growing from one degree of glory until we meet you, the God of glory, in your glory. We long and await that day. Break in upon us in the truth now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, you're here on a good week. Not as if there's a bad week here at Cornerstone, but a particularly good week here in Exodus Chapter 15, we're at the end of the very first section in the book of Exodus, having last week witnessed the Lord lead the people of Israel from the dead end of the Red Sea through a path of deliverance in the sea on their way to salvation. And today in chapter 15, we learn that we need to sing about that. We learn what Christians have learned throughout all of history, that God's deliverance should be responded to with worshipful devotion, that salvation always demands a song, that redemption must give way to rejoicing. And throughout the scripture, we see when God acts with power and grace for his people, his people respond by lifting up their voices in praise. Just think with me about Hannah, who had long prayed for a son, and then the Lord answered. What could she do but write a song? When Israel was defeating their foe, Jabin and Sisera, it was Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5 who take up the pen so the people of Israel can sing about it. 
King David when he is finally freed from his enemies. In 2 Samuel chapter 22 can do nothing but write a song and to sing. When the Ark of the Covenant finally returns to Jerusalem after a long tenure in Philistia, it's the lyre and the harp and the cymbals are broken out. All of the instrumentation and the people of God sing and dance before the Lord. And so it's no real surprise, is it, when Mary says to Joseph, it is time. And they find a little outhouse of an inn there in Bethlehem that soon thereafter the heavens themselves will open up. And the angelic host will declare that God has brought a deliverer and it's worth singing about. You see, it's through song that salvation finds a home in our hearts. It's through song that salvation finds a home in our hearts. I imagine just even a few moments ago when we sang holy, holy, holy. Some of you in this room closed your eyes in meditative reflection as the truth of the stanzas of that hymn were woven and refreshing into your heart. Or when you would sing, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Or how firm a foundation. Or all of the beautiful hymns of old that the church throughout the ages have written and sung to declare the deliverance that they have known and enjoyed by God. When we sing those songs, we find that the salvation of our God finds rest, a home in our hearts. It's what we should expect because Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that the word of Christ, that is the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, should dwell richly within you. How should that happen, Paul? Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our heart to God. It actually wouldn't seem right, would it, for the people of Israel to cross through on dry land and get to the other shore of the Red Sea and to there see the deliverance of their God and to just say, all right, let's get going to the promised land. It wouldn't seem right, would it? To just move right along as if nothing significant happened. It's as if right now, through him, an Ebenezer is being set up. So the people of God will remember for all generations what it is that the Lord has done. It's as if the salvation of the Lord culminates in the worship in song of God's people. That maybe salvation hasn't come into the fullness of its flowering until we learn to sing about it. And when we look at this particular song in Exodus chapter 15, we learn what it means for a song to appear in our souls. What would it mean for you this morning, not just to sing, but to sing? You know what I mean. What would it mean for you not just to mouth the words, but as you were imagining the people of Israel on the seashore of the Red Sea as the wreckage from the chariots begins to wash up on the shore and bubbling are the bodies of the Egyptians of which they've been delivered from. And you see, staring you in the face, the faithfulness of your God delivering you. That kind of worship that bubbles out of you in song. What would it take 
for us to sing in that way? What would it take for our hymnody to not be merely an element of worship, but the heartbeat of our soul expressed to a God who's worthy of it? Well, this hymn actually teaches us what it would take. It takes looking in three directions. We must first look back to the Lord's deliverance. And then we must look forward in hope and in faith to the Lord's promises. And then we must look up to the character and the attributes of the God who saved us. Do you see, that's how Moses begins, by looking back. Looking back to the Lord's deliverance. Most of this hymn, in one way, shape, or form, could be referred to as repetition. If you are reading chapter 15 like a historian, or you're one of those just the facts, ma'am, just the facts kind of person, you would have read through Exodus chapter 15 and said, yeah, we already know this. Like, we, we read that in the previous chapter. There's no new information here. Let's move right along. But, of course, you would have missed the point of Exodus 15. The point is not the facts. It's that the facts need to be sung. Is that the history needs to be woven. The deliverance needs to be restful and exuberant in the hearts and the lives of God's people. And Moses here, as he writes the song, rehearses the deliverance. So that we can once again be incited to sing. Notice verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Verse 5. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And yet, verse 9, Pharaoh was boasting, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desires shall have their fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But as we read in the previous chapter, Pharaoh's pride was only a precursor to his fall. His finest warriors and his top of the line, 2022 model chariots, make their way into the Sea of Israel never to come out. And in a scene reminiscent of Genesis 8 and the flood, we see them entirely destroyed by the water. This is Moses looking back, rehearsing, remembering repetitively the deliverance of God. And you can imagine how powerful that scene would have been to be there in the moment of that, well, of that celebration, of that victory, of, that, of, that, of the joy that comes in knowing that you have accomplished a great feat that God has accomplished. Your deliverance. The Lord is my strength and my song. Yahweh has become my salvation. Over and over, Moses is pointing us in the direction of what God has done. He has done it. He is the deliverer. He is the one who has freed us from our captivity. And in the most glorious and a melodramatic way, he has brought us across the Red Sea and won salvation on the behalf of his people. 
Listen, the same is true for us every Sunday as we gather here in this space, that we come here to remember the deliverance of our God. Now, maybe you need to be reminded of that. Why are you here, by the way? Are you here for that reason? Are you here to remember the deliverance of your God? Or did you come here as well? A woman told me not too long ago, she, come, she comes to church, not this church, another church. She comes to another church for a blessing. She comes to get, get a blessing. And some of you are like, well, I do hope to leave with some encouragement, some, some refreshment. It's not looking good with this preacher going on and on as he is. Um, I'm looking, though, for something to be a blessing. Well, if you're, if you're looking for a blessing, you, you, haven't, you haven't yet understood worship. Blessing, yes. Does the Lord likely have a blessing in store for those who in faith in Christ have come here to meet with Him? You better believe that He has a blessing in store for you. But that's the byproduct. Worship is coming here for the purpose of remembering and giving to God the honor that is due His name for the deliverance that He has won for us as people. That's what worship is. That's what worship is. The reason we worship is that we have seen God do something remarkable. We stand at the foot of the cross this morning and we look up, as it were, at Jesus. And we see Him crushing our great enemy, the serpent. We see Him laying low the savages that have wrecked our souls of sin and death. We come to the tomb and we see that it is empty and like Mary... We hear the voice of the angel, he is not here, he has risen. We stand with the disciples as they watch Jesus ascend into the heavenly places to his rule and reign on high, knowing that he has been vindicated and received by his Father, and he goes to live to make an intercession for us. We gather with the throng in Jerusalem as Peter preaches that sermon at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls and we remember the power of the gospel and we see souls changed, we remember the deliverance of our God, we believe and we sing. That's why we're here. And we do all of those things not just simply because we need them, though we need them. We do them because they're right. We do them because it's the only thing to do, to be quite honest. That's why eternity is marked by this very same pattern. I was struck again this week by reading Revelation chapter 5. The heavenly hosts are gathered. The angels are there. Those who have gone on in Christ and have died are, are there. Think even now of loved ones who you know who have died in Christ. Right around the throne with the angels. What, what are they doing there? They're singing. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what they're doing. They're singing and hymning their love to the Lord. They're remembering what the Lamb has done and that He's worthy of our worship. One of my pastor mentors likes to say, you know what worship is? You know why it's so important? It's practicing for heaven. Are you going to be ready for heaven? Are you going to be ready for heaven? 
Is your heart being inclined and conditioned by the priorities of heaven? As you live and walk in the earth, is there something of the aroma of heaven about you? Are you a person who remembers, believes, and sings the deliverance of your God? You see, we must look back at the deliverance of our God. This conditions the heart of the believer to be one who sings unto the Lord. But secondly, not only do we look back to the deliverance of our God, we look forward in faith to our future hope. It's really quite remarkable about the the whole of this hymn that Moses wrote, it splits, as it were, down the middle in terms of themes. If you look at Exodus 15 with me, you'll see verses 1 all the way through verse 12 speaks about what God has done. And then in verse 13, there's a shift. Notice the shift. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What what is Moses looking to here as he goes into verse 13? Well, he's cast his eyes to the promised land. He's actually, in a sense, already praying and singing what's going to happen in the unfolding story of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As the Lord leads the people of Israel across the wilderness, as they cross the Jordan River into the promised land, he's already beginning to pray the future, sing the future. Now, how is he doing that? Because he trusts the promises of this God. He's looking to that future and he's saying, listen, I know that you're going to bring your people through, even the nations around the promised land. Philistia, he names. You remember the Philistines? You remember Goliath? Edom, the Edomites, this this lineage of of Esau, Uh, the Moabites, and even the Canaanites themselves. These are the nations surrounding the promised land. These are the nations that will be a thorn in the side to the people of Israel. These are the enemies of God's people. He says, as they go, as you go, people of Israel, as God leads you by his love across the wilderness towards the promised land, the story of God's deliverance is going to go out to the nations. And as they hear the story of God's deliverance, Having laid low the greatest superpower of the then day world in Egypt, they're going to shake in their boots. They're going to be paralyzed in fear. Edom is going to be dismayed. Philistia is going to be seen with pangs of fear. Because no one has seen a God like you. Who is a God like you? How majestic in all of your ways. Complete in your holiness, in the power and the strength of your deliverance. And we actually know, interestingly, that the story did go far and wide. Do you remember at the opening of the book of Joshua? This is Joshua chapter 2, where the spies are sent into the land of Canaan. People of Israel now have made their way through the wilderness wandering. whole generation has died off. And the two spies go in and they're kept there in Rahab, the prostitute's house, hid on the roof. You remember this? And do you remember what Rahab says? This is now 40 to 50 years removed. She says, we've heard the story about the Egypt thing. That's amazing. We heard the story about the parting of the seas. I know that God is with you. The news outlets captured the story. 
And it went all over the then known world, so much so that when Rahab intersects them, she knows, she literally says, I know that the Lord has given the land to you. She knows the promises of the Lord. Moses is already singing about the fear that will be struck in the enemies of Israel before they even get there. And he's already forecasting the completion of God's promises. Notice that he notes in here that you are going to plant my people Israel in this holy mountain. He's speaking of Jerusalem. He's speaking of the temple mount. The people of God are going to be there. You are going to have your abode there, O Yahweh, O Lord. The sanctuary of the Lord will be there and you will reign forevermore. Now notice Moses here is not just recounting what's happened in deliverance in the past. No, he's also rejoicing in the promises with hope in the future. Not only is the song of Moses retrospective, but the song of Moses is prospective. It has hope as it considers The future, and listen friends, the same is true when we worship. We have looked back, don't we, to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the empty tomb, to the ascension, to the fall of the Spirit. But we look forward in hope too each time that we worship together. We consider the promises of God for the future, don't we? We talk about those as those being saved, found and hid in Christ, but we also say, We await and we long for and we sing of our future heavenly reward. We we hymn the Lord about our rescue from slavery, but we plead with the Lord that He would bring us safely home. We believe the promises of the Word, but we haven't yet seen the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we'll be fed by God's grace here at the supper, but we don't call this supper the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's something more that we look forward to. We are indeed a pilgrim people. A people that are delivered, but a people who haven't yet reached their destination. A people whose mind is set on the things above, but a people who wait for Christ to return. Do you know when we sing, we sing both of these realities? I was thinking of that lovely, moving song, It Is Well With My Soul. We sing about what God has done in that lovely hymn. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Do you see the rejoicing and the deliverance of God as we look back upon what He's accomplished? But do you know the pivot of this hymn, don't you? And Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight, when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, And the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Do you see, as we look back to the deliverance of our God and His faithfulness to His promises of old, it gives us hope to look to the future in His Word. And in a sense, that future begins to come into our own present. 
It breaks in upon us the peace and the certainty that the God who has been faithful in the past will be faithful in the future. I can entrust myself to Him as I walk along the way. By looking back to what God has done and by looking forward to what it is we know God will do teaches us to look up. To look up and behold the Lord our God. You see, as we look back and as we look forward, we are confronted with the nature of who this God is, His character, His attributes. We, we see clearly who He is and why it is that He can be trusted. In this remarkable song of Moses, there are many truths that we could linger over and pause over, and many of which I'm tempted to. There's only two I want to draw to your attention this morning. The first is this. When we look up to the Lord in this particular hymn, this is what we see. That the Lord is a warrior who has fought and defeated our greatest enemy. That's who it is that we see. That's what it is that we behold. Moses says it in so many words there in verse 3, doesn't he? He says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now Moses, of course, is pulling from the previous chapter in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, when Israel was hemmed in right there by the Egyptian fort at the corner of the Red Sea and the army of Egypt bearing down upon them, and they were paralyzed in fear. Moses prophetically spoke to them these words, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Notice in chapter 14, that was in the future tense. Notice that here in verse 3, the statement is around the character of who this God actually is. He is the Lord who is a man of war. He has actually not just will fight for you. You now as you stand on the shore and you see the deliverance, He is the God who has fought for you. Now what's remarkable about that is that Genesis 3.15 tells us that this is the nature of what we should anticipate going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. That a clash was foreseen, a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that in a very real sense, the people of Israel's clash with Egypt was just that. The clash with Pharaoh and with Yahweh was just that. But even more so, all of this gives way ultimately to the clash that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to the evil one, that mortal blow on the cross itself. When he puts to death death on the third day in his resurrection, and he proves his victory by coming forth from the grave and conquering our greatest enemy of sin and death. Part of how it is that we today can look up to our Lord and see his character is that that which he has promised is that which he has done. And today, my friends, we can say if you are in Christ, he has fought for you. He has fought for you. You know, very often we jump the gun in that instruction. Some of us may be dealing today with conflicts in our in our workplaces, maybe even in our marriages, maybe we're struggling financially. And maybe there's hidden sins that are increasingly 
having reigning power in our lives, and we can see and feel things spinning out of control, and we're concerned that the wheels would come off and it would be noticeable, even to everyone around us. And maybe we say to ourselves, we're going to stand strong and we're just going to trust that the Lord is going to fight for us. Well, that's not what the text is actually saying to you in that moment. The text is saying, set your eyes upon Christ who has already defeated that sin on the cross. Set your eyes on Christ who has overcome your greatest enemy, sin and death. Set your eyes on the fact that He has already fought for you and completed it, even set on the cross. It is finished. And then say to yourself, because he has taken care of the biggest threat in my life, I can face by faith the smaller threats of my life. He may be calling you to sit still and be quiet, but he may be calling you to do something and speak up. I don't know what kind of fight you're in. I don't know what kind of circumstances you're in. There's various strategies and tactics that the Lord calls us to. But no matter what the moment of the temporal battle that you may be facing now that seems so important to you, the Lord says, I want you to see in the light of what I've already done, the present struggles that you face. And the fact of the matter is, no matter how big they feel, they're not that big in light of what Jesus has done for you. When we live by the light of eternity, the earth and its struggles come into right perspective. You could die. You could lose everything. Your life could fall apart. And you could learn the truth that C.S. Lewis has taught. That he who has Christ and everything in the world has no more than he who just has Christ. Do you believe that? That you believe that to live is Christ, and to die is gain? Do you believe that Christ is more valuable than everything in your life that you hold precious? Do you believe that the things which He would take from you in this life and the struggles you would have here if you are in Christ would be so multiplied unto you in the heavenly places that it wouldn't be worthy to be compared? Such is the nature of our God. He is a warrior who has fought and defeated our greatest enemy. He has fought for you and he will fight for you. But I want you to see secondly and lastly that the Lord is a loving leader who guides us through the wilderness and who brings us home. Notice in verse 13 the language you have Led in your steadfast love. There it is. He's a loving leader. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. He's bringing us home. Do you realize he's gone to prepare a place for you? That's what he tells you. You know, Jesus is hard at work getting a place ready for you if you're in Christ. If he's not returned, that place is not yet ready. And he's preparing a people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation for the place in which he has gone to prepare for us so that we would live in his holy abode in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that great, glorious, forever temple, that place where he is ultimately planting his people, that mountain that we call Mount Zion, 
That is the place that he has gone to prepare for us. All of these Old Testament pictures are but shadows, but types and pictures of the fact that we are those people in whom he is leading lovingly through a pilgrim existence on our way to a heavenly home. And it's there where we will see him just as he is. Do you know that's what your heart longs for more than anything else? Now you may call it a vacation. You you may think it's a new car or a new house. What your heart longs for is the sight of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. That's what your heart longs for. But unless you have embraced Him, unless you have trusted Him by faith, unless you have been robed in His righteousness, have admitted and confessed your sin, and laid your life down at His feet, and have been willing as a disciple to take up the cross daily and follow Him, you're not prepared to see Him. Your fate, sadly, would be no better than that of the Egyptian army. It's like a stone at the bottom of the Red Sea. But for those who are in Christ who have trusted in Him, for you today, should you trust in Him, you would find that He will promise to never cast you out. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, He tells us. And for those in whom He saves, those He sanctifies. Those He glorifies. God never begins a journey with the people without getting them all the way to where they need to be. He won't leave you halfway. He won't go ahead and leave some crumbs for you to figure out the rest of the journey. He's right there with you. I'm with you all the way to the end, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. Do you see, the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us all the hope that we need to be able to sing. Do you know why the people of God are so known by song? Because when these truths start registering in your soul, there's nothing else you can do. Why do you think the Apostle Paul could be locked away in a Roman prison and be singing hymns at the top of his lungs? Why do you think someone like Perpetua, a martyr in the early church, could in faith in Christ enter the Colosseum and be torn limb from limb by wild beasts and join with her fellow believers in singing to the Lord. Where does that come from? Only one who has let goods and kindred go. And this mortal life also. Who can sing with truth the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you see, those are the moments where we know these things. And it's the hymns of the faith that fill our hearts, isn't it? As we remember God's deliverance, as we look to the promises and the hope of the future, and as we look up to His character and see that He is worthy to be trusted. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Know the deliverance of our God and sing. 
Father in heaven, we pray that you would fill our mouths even now with the song of redemption. That salvation would be, as it were, on the tip of our tongue. As we close this sermon with this prayer, we can't help but also usher forth in song. Would it be true today that we as your people do not simply mouth the words, but find today we sing until we sing. That we have met the living God. We have known his deliverance. We have glimpsed from afar the celestial city and the promises that await. And it is all yes and amen in our Savior, the Advocate, who lives to make intercession for us. How could we not then, in light of this glorious truth, sing and keep singing? Lord, open up our mouths to declare your praise as we give testimony in the assembly of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.